The following is a message from Reverend Ken Melvin of Wellsprings Congregation. There's a story that may be true, sounds true, so I'm going to use it, which is that a number of years ago when the Dalai Lama was being interviewed, the journalists knew that the spiritual figure had a birthday coming up, and so was asked, asked of him, What is it you plan to do on your birthday? And smiling, that's an important part of this story, smiling, the Dalai Lama replied, I will be preparing for my death. Maybe not an answer some of us would give. It's the answer the Dalai Lama gave. And perhaps that's why he is the Dalai Lama. And that he could do so smiling is another indication of the importance of what he said. So today is my birthday. Thank you for that wonderful recitation, singing of happy birthday. Uh, You know I'm either embarrassed or overjoyed when I turn red in the face as a redhead. I got no place to hide. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Does my heart well to be with you today. So this is midway through this series about midlife. And... If certain estimates are to be believed, today I turned 44, uh, maybe exactly halfway through my life, numerically, exactly halfway through my life. If an estimate like this is to be believed, this is something called the ticker, T-I-K-K-E-R. Some of your eyes just got a little wide because you know what this is. This is, uh, it's an inexact estimate, but a decent estimate for each of us. We can get this gauge taken of how many years we have left. I just saw someone gulp. How many years we have left? 54 years, it says for this person. I don't think I have 54 years. I'd be 98. I guess it wouldn't be so bad. The ticker, an estimation, a numerical realization that maybe for us, those of us who are in midlife, those of us approaching midlife, those of us who have already been midlife, maybe we make the realization <coughs> that perhaps there are fewer years in front of us than there are years in back of us. But here's the thing at, at midlife for many of us, it is not just our own death that starts to hit home It is the death of those that we care about. It is the mortality of those earthen vessels into which we have placed our hearts and our loves that start to appear with regularity. That, I think, is what death at midlife means for so many of us, is that simply it shows up with much more regularity. We might recognize at midlife these words from the wonderful spiritual navigator of the religious life of the life of death, Emily Dickinson, who says, who wrote, because I could not stop for death. Here's the punchline. Death kindly stopped for me. Our lives are so busy. My life is so busy. It's easy to just keep going on and going on and going on. And yet at midlife, sometimes we get the little tap on the shoulder from life itself saying, you got to stop and pay attention because mortality is not just a fact of life. It is the fact of life. I know this. Uh, two of my closest friends in the world will be making uh, two weekends from now 
an unexpected visit to Philadelphia and stay with us. And actually, I was already going to see them three weekends from now when we take off for our annual springtime, five of us all together, our annual spring mancation. We are, we are such a midlife group of guys. We're like a walking cliche. You know, we just, we, we take this time to get together and it's wonderful and there's, it, it really isn't, there's not much carousing that goes on anymore. We go to sleep early when we used to. We maybe go, we see some baseball games. One of us loses 100, another of us wins 100 maybe at the blackjack table. That's as wild as it gets because really it's about this ritual of paying attention to our lives. Friendships at midlife take a lot of intention to keep them going. Well, two of these closest friends are coming to town, as I said earlier, than expected, because a friend of theirs from the college that they went to, a friend of theirs seemingly everything going all right in his life, but out of the blue, took his own life this past week. Because I could not stop for death. Death kindly and sometimes untimely, stops for us and says, pay attention. Pay attention. That's what today's song that Andy did such a wonderful job with is all about cremation, ashes to ashes from Lou Reed from his amazing album, powerful album called Magic and Loss. That was his, by the way, midlife 40-something response to the fact that his friends unexpectedly were starting to pass away and starting to die, and his heart started to be touched by mortality. Cremation, ashes to ashes, brings to heart and brings to our lives in a way bigger than any single tradition what is one of the lessons of this the Christian calendar right now, this period of Lent that begins with Ash Wednesday, with these words that's remember, remember, it said, remember, O mortal, thou art dust, and to dust thou will return. These are the facts of life at midlife. That can really start to reach us and touch us and change us. The facts of life at midlife are different from maybe the classic facts of life conversation we had or sought out when we were teenagers. Right now it's going on in a wonderful, healthy, intentional way. And I point up here because that's where our classroom, our our whole lives, comprehensive, spiritual, values-based and Unitarian Universalist identity is going on for our teenagers right now. Now, maybe some of us had that conversation with our parents, or maybe some of us had that conversation with the facts of life when we were adolescents in health class, and maybe some of us found uh, that that cable channel we weren't supposed to watch, maybe. It shows you how old I am. It's not the cable channel anymore. I guess it's just the internet. But the point is, is that the facts of life conversation in midlife, well, it can still be about sex, but it's about something more. It's life tapping us on the shoulder, saying death will stop for us or stop us in our tracks, all of us at some point. Life talks with us and says the conversation is going to be about our mortality. Here's the paradox of making this realization in our lives at any age, especially in midlife is that simultaneously this recognition of our own death and the death of everyone and everything that we have ever loved or care about, it can simultaneously deepen, expand, blow our perspectives wide open 
and at the same time birth in us a much more deep and real and intimate conversation with the most close-to-heart facts of our lives. I had a recognition of this the other day. I don't know if some of you are watching this, the relaunched version of uh, uh, Cosmos. Yeah, some of you watching it, Neil deGrasse Tyson. There's only been two, this wonderful relaunch of the old Carl Sagan, billions and billions back in the 70s that opened so many folks' minds to the glory of what science can show us about this universe. And in this first episode, there was this moment in which Neil deGrasse Tyson flying through his mythical, fantastical CGI flying machine first starts in the, the immense distance just in our solar system between the planets and the solar system and then takes the solar system into account and then links up all the solar systems around us and the billions and billions of solar systems that then become the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy. And then saying, well, we're not stopping there. Then we take the billions and billions of galaxies that become our universe and this is what many theoretical physicists like himself are saying right now. It's not just the universe anymore. It's the multiverse. A limitless, unbelievable amount of time space to try and take in. The mind cannot understand. I found it both dizzying and beautiful. Like I literally had to sit down a little bit because my heart was like racing a little bit. The vastness of this. I mean, the time-space piece is real if we really sit in it. The time, that our time is so brief. Our human time collectively is so brief and our own life almost the vanishing point and that the vast scale of the space of things that our lives are also unbelievably small. This can lead us, I think, to one of two conclusions. One, that because time and space are so vast and so ongoing and so infinite, that life is cheap and not worth all that much, or that life is precious and worth more than we could ever seek to say. Now, sometimes maybe we might have the same thought simultaneously, <laughs> Life is cheap and life is precious. But ultimately, I believe, especially if we want to cultivate a deeper perspective in this life, we have to cast our lot with one or the other. We have to cast our lot with what are we willing to trust. It is a reflection of our willingness to ask that question, how open are we to letting love form our lives? Because the life is cheap response very often ends up with something I've seen before. It doesn't happen to all of us, not by any means, but it really does or can end up with the midlife crisis. Life is cheap. I want to get as possibly much as I can out of it. I want to kind of, you know, adopt that perspective. The one who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> but ultimately, for many of us, we find that the midlife crisis doesn't open up space for meaning can open up space for a lot more acquisition, a lot more stuff, potential even of addiction. But that it is not true that the one who dies with the most toys wins. Or, perceiving our lives to be unbelievably precious, we can use this fact of life of our mortality to open our hearts again and again and again. We can allow the preciousness of life in the face of death to make us wise and loving. This is one of the deepest truths that I've found over and over again. And 
actually having nothing to do with my seminary training. It has to do with the practice of ministry, which is the ability to be with people as they are dying or are preparing for the deaths of their loved ones. That can be a remarkable time of making amends and setting to right and opening up space for the healing of the heart. And here's the thing. We don't have to wait until the end to do this. We can start this work right now if we keep the truth of our mortality and the mortality of everyone or everything that we love close and center to our hearts. This is the process of what's called reconciliation, of peacemaking in this life, of peacemaking and healing with some of the most difficult aspects and difficult experiences that we can come to know as human beings. To restate something that Dr. Phil says that, you know, I want to tweak just a little bit here. Do we want to be right in this life or do we want to be reconciled? Being reconciled doesn't mean that we're wrong. It just means that there's something more important than making sure that we're right all the time. One of the people who helped form my thoughts for this message series is a guy named Richard Rohr. I've talked about him before. He is a wonderfully progressive Catholic contemplative teacher who talks about the invitation of what he calls the second half of life, the life in which we were kind of, as he says, falling upward, that paradox. He says that we have the invitation to recognize, as I heard one person say recently, that we are not at all apart from life. We are a part of life. And especially in the second half of life, we have the opportunity to participate more deeply, more fully, and to experience a sense of union that if we think we are an individual ourselves alone forever, we will never be able to to know in our hearts. This reconciliation, this sense of deep participation in all of life, this is a realization of our universalist hope which says simply this, we all come from the same source and eventually we are all going to the same destination. And to let this essential commonality form our lives right here and right now. I think we heard part of the voice of reconciliation, of peacemaking, of looking at what helps life and what harms life and seeking to be on the side of the helpers, on the side of love from Pete, who I would say is probably a little, little, little longer on to the second half of life than I am. But the truth is the truth. We can be reconciled with and to this life. Had a wonderful opportunity to see and to hear what this sounds like this past week. Some of you might know that a guy named Reverend Fed, Fred Phelps died this past week. Reverend Fred Phelps was one of the most outrageous, egregious, vile homophobes that any of us would ever care to meet. He was the head of what was called the Westboro Baptist Church, whose job it was, they felt, to arrive at military funerals and any public place they could discern where they could make some noise and claim, from their interpretation of Scripture, maybe you've seen the signs, so I'm not saying you haven't seen something you haven't seen before, God hates fags. Hateful stuff, vile stuff. And yet, George Takei, some of you know him as Sulu from Star Trek, he's become this amazing online presence. And he himself, a gay man, had these words this past week, knowing that Fred Phelps blamed George Takei's existence for everything that was going wrong in our country, decided to say this instead, George Takei did. 
I take no solace or joy in this man's passing. We will not dance upon his grave nor stand vigil at his funeral holding God hates Fred's signs. Tempting as it may be. He was a tormented soul who tormented so many Hate never wins out in the end. It instead goes always to its lonely, dusty end. A colleague of mine, Lynn Unger, put these words up on Facebook in the past week. Also a universalist understanding of reconciliation. God speed, Fred Phelps, and God bless. I do not condone your hateful words or spiteful actions, but I will not mimic them. May you at long last find peace, and may those of us who go on living never stop choosing peace. And then a final visual articulation of what it is like to live a reconciled life, where the people who succeeded, it's an odd word to put it that way, or the people who came after Fred Phelps decided to take another opportunity to be publicly, vilely homophobic. And counter-protesters showed up not to say God hates Fred's, but simply to say Sorry for your loss. This is the grace of reconciliation. The grace of ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And we know as well that it not just is an opportunity to change how we do our politics or our social teachings or how we engage with people who might feel different from us. It also is an opportunity to heal within our own lives some of the things that maybe we've been carrying around for a very, very long time. I raise my hand here myself. Some of you know that uh, this past June, about nine months ago, I had an opportunity to go back to the Hill School. Hill School from which I uh, uh, graduated in 1988, 25 years ago, now more than 25 years ago, my God, um, and, and, and was invited to lead a service of memorial for our classmates who had died, three of whom had died just upon reaching midlife by their own hand. Now, I don't have the best recollection of my time at Hill. I thought it was because the place was so reactionary and I was so progressive that, you know, that was their issue. And this is why I told myself, rationalized at least, why I had all these maladaptive coping mechanisms. But here's the thing. I then chose one of the most left-wing schools in America to go, go to college. And I was just as unhappy there. So who exactly was the problem? <laughs> here's the thing. Going back and being able to lead our classmates through grief and loss was a chance for me to put to rest some of the baggage I had still been carrying unnecessarily about some of my insecurities, about the fact that we were all immature back then. One of the beautiful follow-ups to conducting this memorial service at my boarding school was that about a month after that, a guy who I got to know again. I didn't know him all that well back when we were in boarding school. Truth be told, I don't really like him all that much. I don't think he liked me all that much. He called me up a month after that at a vulnerable time of his life, and asked, would you help me write the eulogy for my stepmother's funeral? Because she has just died. Remember that thou art ashes, and to ashes thou will return. This really can change and soften the heart. That's what I felt as a result of my experience last June, a kind of softening. A kind of recognition that we are all in this together. And if we can live in light of that truth, 
we can all become a lot less rigid with each other and a lot more forgiving. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of studies done about what um, living in an active consideration of our mortality can do for us. It can make us more kind. It can make us more generous. It can make us uh, behave more like an SOB. It can, behave, uh, it can cause us to behave in ways that are profoundly cruel. It can cause us to behave in all kinds of ways. And I have to believe that one of the differences that invites us to live in those kinder, more compassionate, more generous ways is this. That is reflecting on death in the light of who and what we really love. And we recognize that other people can do that work as well. It can soften all of our hearts. And this brings me back to the song that we did today. These two people. Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson, his wife. Lou Reed who wrote that song that we sang when he was in his 40s. When he maybe was just starting to come to this sense of it midlife. That this isn't going to last forever. And Lou Reed, many of us know, died at age 71 this past October. Lori Anderson, his wife, a wonderful musician in her own right, wrote about their life together in Rolling Stone magazine. And it concludes with these words that I want to read to you. A beautiful reflection on life and loss and love and death. She says, as meditators, we had prepared for this moment. With Lou, I've never seen an expression as full of wonder as his as he died. His hands were doing the water-flowing 21 form of Tai Chi. His eyes were wide open. I was holding in my arms the person I loved the most in the world and talking to him as he died. His heart stopped. He wasn't afraid. I had gotten to walk with him to the end of the world. Life so beautiful, painful, and dazzling does not get better than that. And death, I believe that the purpose of death is the release of love. I'm sure that Lou will come to me in my dreams and will seem to be alive again. And I am suddenly standing here, stunned, here by myself, stunned and grateful. I want to repeat what she said again. And death... I believe that the purpose of death is the release of love. Not just the release of love at that moment, but the purpose of death, I believe, is the release of love right now. This is why this work of accepting and working with our mortality matters so much, so that we are not stingy or clinging in hanging on to our love but instead let it flow 
and let it go back to the life from which it came in the first place. That we don't have to wait for the ultimate moment. We can choose this moment. So yes, today is my birthday. How will I use it? I will be preparing for my death. And I will be preparing for my death because I want to live the most full, the most loving, and the most wise life that I possibly can. I hope that all of us do. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of infinity and of intimacy, spirit of this life so large, so vast, words cannot capture it, and spirit of this life of the beating heart inside each and every one of us that beats with the same life force as all life has ever contained. We live between these poles of speechless wonder and spoken words of love. We live between the poles of infinity and intimacy. May we allow this path to form us, to make our loves mature and whole and flourishing. May we recognize that sometimes in our lives there is no other choice but to live with a broken heart because that is what a a heart that can love is also capable of. May we be lucky enough to know our broken hearts and to have love once again mend our broken hearts. In this, may we be a blessed people. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.